Previously on Living and Effective, Season 2. Misplaced faith is incredibly powerful. It can lead us to help build mansions for men like Peter Popoff. I became this heir apparent of their anointed mantle. Everybody was always prophesying over me that I'm going to be the next great faith healer. Denial functions like a drug for a broken heart. James Randi took a radio scanner to a Peter Popoff revival, and the scanner pretty quickly picked up on, on Popoff's wife, Liz, feeding him names and illnesses of people in the audience. And Randy got a recording of this, and he took it to The Tonight Show. And Johnny Carson played the tape, and it made national news, and all of a sudden, Popoff had to file for bankruptcy. Hello, Petey. Can you hear me? If you can't, you're in trouble. There are all kinds of places in the scripture where people are saying, where in the world are you? Those are angry questions. This is Diane Langberg, practicing psychologist and the author of Suffering and the Heart of God. They're pleading questions. They're frightened questions. Yes, but they're also angry. We feel betrayed by God. How is it possible that the one that I trust can be responsible for my loss? He obviously is the one who could have stopped it. And he didn't. I'm Richard Clark. And I'm Joy Smith. The Christian Standard Bible and Christianity Today present Living and Effective, Season 2. A podcast about what happens when the Bible and humanity collide. Okay, so here's the thing about uh, this episode on anger. It's hard to get good tape of anger. No one I interviewed got angry or even really admitted <laughs> to ever being angry in a, sort of a blatant way. So I was thinking about this a lot and I was like, well, of course they wouldn't be angry in front of me. I'm an interviewer. Right. <laughs> I, I, I've never met these people. And um, I, I think that anger in particular is like too visceral and personal of an emotion to share with someone who's a stranger, essentially. Mm. Some people do it, but when that happens, it like sets off a lot of red flag. And fundamentally, the people we're angriest at are the people we're most intimate with, the people we love and trust. None of these people loved and trusted me. Costi shared a lot with us. Todd Billings allowed us into his home, into his community, introduced us to his friends and his coworkers. But to also say, and also, can, can we have like a really deep relationship? <laughs> I think we'd be asking a little much. They are restraining themselves in the natural way you would with someone who's just like a weirdo asking you a question. That is the reality of anger. But you can feel the remnants of anger. You can feel that it has happened in the past and you mm -hmm. can feel it around just sort of the facts of what has happened. At last episode, we talked about Costi Hen, and sort of out, out of nowhere in that interview, he shared that his his son had cancer, and it was really interesting the way he told us that. And I'm just going to play it back one more time because I think it's important to hear his voice in that moment. Our son Timothy will turn one in just a few days, and 
he's been diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. You think that's what I want? I'm going, yeah, God, give give my one-year-old guy a, a nice, you know, journey with cancer so I can be more spiritual. Nobody wants these things. You hear that edge in his voice when he actually starts to talk about the possibility of wanting it, like that idea. It's almost sneering. Yeah. Yeah. And and I understand that. That's like a natural human thing. Not just sneering at the possibility of wanting that, but he's sneering at the reality, right? Because mm-hmm. the things we don't want that happens to us, it frustrates us. It's, it's, it's anger-inducing. And you have to think that feeling was something he felt more acutely in the moment mm-hmm. that it was happening. I mean, think, I think any natural person would be furious at the idea of their one-year-old son being hurt or in pain or ill. And it's interesting that he could immediately kind of, and the retelling of that, tap back into that. It, and it's almost like he synced it back into that. Yeah. Like he's not trying to share anger with me. and But in, he almost can't help himself. Yeah. But the other thing is, like, you have to believe, or at least I I would, be mad at God as yeah. well, at least for a portion of this. And that's an intimate thing. Like, no one likes to talk about that or um, share that with the world. But there's an, there's an element of that, and we see it in the Psalms, too. And I've always been curious about that. Like, is that okay to be so viscerally angry at God? So I asked Todd Billings what he thought about those passages. There are definitely psalms that feel angry. Some of them feel, like, depressed. Some of them mm-hmm. feel spiteful. Yeah, you know? yeah. Bitter, almost. Yeah. What do you do with those that don't seem hopeful? How do you explain the, the hope portion there? For example, Psalm 88 ends with, Darkness is my only companion. Mm-hmm. It's still stated to the Lord. Like, you don't state this to the Lord unless you trust the Lord. Yeah. You know, maybe hope is too strong of a word for Psalm 88, but I don't think trust is. You don't state something that is so intimate and even desperate unless you trust them. It's hopeful to me as someone who prays the Psalms, that Psalm 88 is included in the Psalter, Mm -hmm. um, because there are times where that's the end of my prayer. I can't make much more sense of things than that. But it's still in the presence of the Lord that I can say, I feel alone. Bonhoeffer pointed out, you're always praying the Psalms with and in Christ. And so... When you pray, darkness is my only companion, you are trusting in the God of the covenant, even in your desolation, and yet you also are praying in the one who has walked this path before you, Mm -hmm. in the one who has walked the path of darkness, Jesus Christ. He has experienced desolation. He was the pioneer, not us. I mean, the fact that their poetry at least songs in that sense, fits with the idea that all of them are praise. Mm. I mean, even Psalms of Lament are Mm -hmm. praise. Mm -hmm. They're not primarily venting or therapeutic in in their primary purpose. 
This is our thank offering. Yeah. Even our anger, even our our laments, um, and certainly our thanksgiving and praise. Right. But all of them are praise. It's interesting to hear Billings talk about this because he has a lot to be mad about. You know, cancer is bad enough. Like, so you go out of the abstract thinking about Todd Billings is a cancer survivor, and you go into the specifics of what that means, what an early death might mean for his family, for his aspirations, for the things he planned to do. That's when you start getting really frustrated on his behalf. How did you expect your life to go? I would find an institution, whether in East Africa or in the U.S., would put down roots and start a long career. I knew I wanted to do writing, and so when I wrote my first few books, I wrote them as you know, the first few books of a young professor who plans to be writing for a really long time. The immediate thought was it was just about my kids, especially. Yeah. So grief for my kids, um, some anger. Not, I mean, I remember saying actually to Tim Brown, who you met, like, I've lived long enough, but why does God want to take away my kid's dad? Fifteen minutes longer. Okay. And I could use a little break. I'm um, sure. You're you're sure um, you can go fifteen more minutes? Yeah, I think okay. so. Because right after that, I will go back for a nap. Okay. Um, take it from there. This is not like the life that Todd Billings expected. Don't you relate to that a little bit? I think that upset expectations is kind of a foundational part of the life that I have. Mm-hmm. It sort of defines it in so many ways. And it cycles me through grief constantly. Say, what do you mean by it cycles you through grief? My life looks nothing like what I expected it to. Yeah. And I thought I would be the 22-year-old who got married and who ended up with babies and a house in the suburbs and all of the things that you were taught to expect and want. So I am 30 years old and I'm single and living with a roommate off of Craigslist and <laughs> a Craigslist roommate, a Craigslist roommate and a Craigslist couch uh-huh. and all of the things that you're not supposed to have. So we have these examples of anger from the Psalms and we have Todd struggling with the implications of these realities. But then we have Costi Hen, who came out of the world of the prosperity gospel and is dealing with a totally different kind of grief in a totally different way. I'll never forget the night my wife walked in with the report and 
there were two things that came out of my mouth. This is the only thing I knew what to how to say. I, you know, when your wife comes in with a paper and she's crying and she says, you know, Timothy has cancer. I said to her first, you know, we weren't going to get out of this life unscathed. And I began to cry and she was crying, of course, already. And I was holding her and she's like, I know, I know. And then the second thing I said is, you know, now we're going to live what I've been preaching. And she said, I know. And then we started crying even more. I will say that during this part of the interview, I was openly weeping. Why were you weeping? There's such a, a genuineness to him. And there's something really lovely about that sentiment to me. And I appreciate that so much, especially someone like Costi, who came from a world who believed almost the opposite, which was that you could do a lot of things to rid yourself from that, to mitigate the risk of yeah, yeah. brokenness. Um but there is almost a Hallmark-like quality right. to what he's saying. There is actually a moment of anger in that story. And it's, did you catch it? No. He talks about how dare we. How arrogant and how prideful and how pretentious would we be if we dare think that everybody else in the world can be sick? And all these millions of families can have children with cancer, but cancer will never happen to our child. Mm. Again, he's he's upset at people who would think we're we're going to escape from this. Who would think? And and I think it's in the moment that that happens to him. And I think it's also because of the background you referenced. Mm -hmm. How dare anyone think they could escape from this out of pure will and faith? So every one of these sages like happens in totally different ways for different people. For Billings, there's like a slow acceptance that I'm aware of. And probably he got mad in the past. I mean, he talks about the Psalms as like a valid way of... So he's he sees it as a valid thing. But the thing that's striking to me is anger does exist. Mm -hmm. For every one of these people, it exists. And in the meantime, I'm angry because he's messing up my clean <laughs> narrative. <laughs> I'm trying to keep this thing on track, and these people are saying different things. We want easy answers, people. Exactly. It's, but thankfully, Todd Billings points out that the Psalms actually allow for that kind of complexity. We need to say to one another that we don't know, that mm -hmm. we trust that God is good, and that our lives are in the hands of God. I mm -hmm. think this is different from a process theist or even some open theist who would say that God doesn't have a reason for, you know, that there are some things that happen to us that are completely senseless, mm -hmm. that God wouldn't have a reason, or that it's outside of God's power. Yeah. If you believe those, I don't think you can really pray the Psalms of Lament, which hold God responsible, even as they question God. I mean, it's like in a good marriage where, or, you know, a good friendship where um, if you have an issue with somebody, mm -hmm. if you are close to them, you're willing to say, hey, you said this vow, what's, what's going on? Yeah. You're not going to hide away. A psalm of lament confronts God with his own promises in light of the mess that we're in. Did you know one time I had this brain scan? That's a great start to a story. One time I had this brain scan. They hooked up. It was for neurofeedback, mm -hmm. and they 
um, the lady basically said all of your emotions fire, like all of the emotional parts of your brain fire a little overactive, which is no surprise to anyone who knows me, except the anger sector, which is a little underactive. What she had basically implied um, in a very nice therapist way was uh, something from your childhood told you to repress the anger part of your brain. Um, and so you slowed the neuro, the like neurons um, in that part of your brain and told it that it should not fire as often or as regularly as it should probably need to. Which I still have trouble with. Like I know that even apart from righteous table flipping anger, I know that there's still good kinds of anger. Sure. Um, I still don't know what that looks like. And to feel angry makes me uncomfortable. I do not like it. And so I I have to kind of talk to myself and tell myself that it's okay to be angry and that it's not it's not a stage to rush through and it's not I haven't done anything wrong and that someone else hasn't done anything wrong necessarily. And if they have it, even that's okay. Like that it's just a part of like anger is a part of life. So what in your childhood told you to repress that anger? I had angry role models and seeing that played out Uh is formative. Anger can be very scary and it can be very big. Anger has a lot of power Very rarely is anger used for anything but intimidation or suppressing other people, you know? Well, it's used for expression sometimes. Expression, yes. But you weren't seeing that. That's right. I I never saw it in a constructive way. Yeah. I only ever saw anger in this big blowout way. Yeah. Anger is like something else. It's like almost a superpower that can be used for good or evil to overstate it a little bit. Death makes us feel very little. It makes us feel vulnerable. It makes us feel insecure. It makes us feel out of control. Here's Diane Langberg again. We don't like those feelings and anger helps us feel bigger. People have things like chest pains or they feel like they can't breathe or their heart's racing or their stomach's weird or their palms are sweaty or whatever and their sleeping is disturbed and their eating is disturbed. So the body is involved in that too and you've got all this adrenaline and everything running around in there and that helps build anger. Grieving is physical. I mean, if you've ever been to another country where they're not so proper as we are in terms of the way we think it needs to be done in a neat little way, people who really grieve, it's a full body thing. And even those of us who sit prim and proper in pews and don't do that also have to deal with the full body thing. So I I think that we need to make room for that and not tell them that they wouldn't be acting or thinking or feeling the way they are if they had faith, which, you know, that's about as crushing a thing as you can do to somebody who's grieving. Now they have more to grieve. (laughs) I remember the first time I was mm, 25 and I watched this Mr. Rogers episode and he talks about like, if you're angry, you can play the piano or you can hit a pillow Uh or you can do, you can go outside and run. And I was like, 
Mr. Rogers, I mean, this incredible man who has this huge, amazing influence. And he wasn't, the message wasn't, don't be angry. The message wasn't, you shouldn't be angry. Yeah. It was, when you're angry, do these things. Yeah. Here are these constructive outlets for anger. As a 25 year old woman, it was a message to me that I needed to hear. Anger is inevitable. It is a part of life, and there are good outlets for anger, and there are bad outlets for anger. Right. People who, when they are grieving, manage their anger really well, yeah. and there are people who, when they are grieving, kind of like spew it on everybody. Right. And sometimes you just can't help that because grief is grief is grief. Yeah. And sometimes you, you can't help it. <laughs> and, I th- and I think this also gets to why it's so important to to work to express our anger honestly to God. God can take it. Like right. God more than anyone. It's like a it's like a hierarchy, you know? It's like a, a standard office hierarchy. I'm going to complain to my boss. I'm going to rage against my boss, but it's it's not ideal if I'm ranting to the person I'm supervising. It's ideal if I'm going up instead of down right. with it. Because there's so much in life that yeah. I I want to hold God responsible for. That's a scary concept to me. And maybe it's that idea because I did grow up with parents who, if I were to be mad, responded with mad. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of holding God responsible is like, so if I go to God with anger, am I going to be met with that tidal wave in response? I mean, obviously the answer is no. I hate conflict. I hate the moment before I have a hard conversation with someone. Anxiety churns in the pit of my stomach. The small talk right before I launch into why we're really there is so painful, so tense. It's like a bubble that grows and grows and grows until it bursts. And we can finally get to the topic, the big point of confrontation. Because I know that as long as there's something between me and someone else, our relationship can't move forward. I feel this way in prayer sometimes. I dread what's coming. I tense up over the small talk. I mourn the stagnation. And sometimes I'm too scared to do what I need to. But other times I manage to take that leap of faith and I tell God everything that I am furious, I am frustrated, I am disappointed. And here's why. This isn't what I thought you'd do for me. Happiness and needs are meant to be met. And where is God in this emptiness? And like any genuine friend, God listens. He doesn't reject me. He takes my concerns as valid. But it can be easy to avoid this confrontation altogether. That's the appeal of Peter Popoff, the disgraced televangelist we ended the last episode with. When you're uncomfortable yelling at God, people like Popoff are happy to be a mediator, siphoning your anger and frustration. And in exchange, you'll get empty promises. And remember, Popoff was caught offering empty promises red-handed thanks to an intercepted recording. 
The names, addresses, and ailments of his audience were revealed to pop off through an earpiece, not the Holy Spirit. So when someone is so clearly exposed as lying about reality, their followers will finally reject the pretense of a guaranteed escape from their grief. Right? I saw him on TV one night. Here's Mark Oppenheimer. I think I was in a hotel room and I was flipping through channels and I came across Black Entertainment Television, BET, and there was Peter Popoff. I just had a sense that I'd seen this guy before, that he was one of these 1980s televangelists. I also thought that he had been disgraced, and I was right. I went and dug up some old research, but Peter Popoff was one of the great debunked figures of the 80s, so I was shocked that he still had a career. Living and Effective is a collaboration between CT Creative Studio and the Christian Standard Bible. All of Season 2 is available now at livingandeffective.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Living and Effective is hosted by me, Richard Clark. It's written and produced by me, my co-host Joy Beth Smith, and Cray Allred. Additional writing by Nick Reinerson, Michael Wojcik, and Nick Thompson. Music from Yawns, Sweeps, and the Grey Havens. On the next chapter of Living and Effective, Season 2. There was Peter Popoff, back onto TV. He starts buying a lot of time on, on BET. But you don't understand. If I don't preach some prosperity gospel, they'll leave our churches... I think there are biblical reasons for thinking that we simply don't know why God allows. God does do good things through our weakness and through even terrible things that happen, but it's not a justification. Bargaining, if I this, then you that. It's another way of trying to avoid the full-blown truth of the loss. Some level that desperation drives you to do what seems like crazy things because those crazy things work out seemingly for some people. I've seen this again and again as I've been immersed in the cancer community where the only faithful response when somebody is very near death is pray for a miracle.